Okay, turn to Luke, please. Luke chapter 19. We're going to read Luke chapter 19, just a few verses this morning on this Palm Sunday, verses uh, 45. And we're going to dip in, we're going to dip our toe into chapter 20 a little bit, just two verses in there. Verse, uh, Luke 19, verse 45 through chapter 20, verse 2. And let me pray. Lord, would you please illuminate yourself to us, to me? Would you lead us through what you would say? We believe here that this is your word, and it, you do not need me to speak. You have invited me, and I... I Man, I'm always so humbled by that. But Lord, first of all, you've invited us to listen. We are not the initiators here. We're the listeners. So Lord, would you give us a proper posture in our hearts now? In Jesus' name, amen. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that, that, that they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words And one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and they said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who has given you this authority? And this is God's word. This is one of the most interesting shots of Jesus. One of the most interesting snapshots. This is not something that we typically picture when we think of Jesus. We think of Jesus as meek and mild and soft and loving and kind of cuddly and and all of these types of things. This is always such a stark shot of Jesus because he's angry, he's violent, he's um, insistent, he's uh, irate, he's he's very angry here. And yet it's super important because all four of the gospels have chosen to record this. This is clearly something that the Bible wants us to see a side of Jesus that the Bible wants us to see. And when you read all of the accounts, the accounts together, let me just give you a kind of a, a four angles at this here. When you read all of the accounts together, you have Jesus, he makes a whip in John, and he drives out people violently with it. He drives them out. He overturns tables. I mean, think of this. He just overturns tables He takes the money and he pours it out on the floor. Um, He stops others. Another account says he stops others from coming in. So people are wanting to come through and he says, no, I don't know how he did that, but he stops them from coming in. I mean, maybe he had a whip in his hand. I don't know. But he had such authority to where, and you think about this, you think, you know, if, if this happened in here, if somebody, if Nathan just got up and started tearing the place up, right, no doubt, especially, you know, Nathan, he weighs a buck five, you know, several of you would get up and say, okay, you're not doing this anymore. But think of the, the authority of Jesus, something about his presence, no one messed with him. 
And this is a crowded marketplace going on in the temple, which is part of the problem. Imagine, imagine Pike's Place Market in church when you're trying to worship. That's the picture here. Merchants and people trying to buy and sell and it's frantic and you can't even hear yourself think and all this stuff's going on. And Jesus walks in, forms a whip as he's looking around and he just starts going to town. Get out, everybody done. Maybe they weren't listening, so he threw a table over. You know when you, you gotta get someone's attention, you raise your voice, you get into it? I'm serious right now. Maybe even the, the disciples were like, wow. Here's what's interesting about this is Jesus just came. This is Palm Sunday. And Jesus just rode into Jerusalem. If you read right before this, he rode into Jerusalem on a, on a, the, uh, on a donkey claiming to be, basically making a very loud claim to be the messianic Davidic king. In other words, a descendant from David riding into David's city to take the throne of David. It was an unmistakable claim. It wasn't in code. It wasn't secret. They knew what he was claiming to do. And the people came out. And you remember the story. People came out and they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. He brought his friends from Galilee up north. He brought these kind of this rebel clan with him. And they stormed the city. And he's claiming royalty. Royal presence, that's what's going on here. And you remember that, you know, the Pharisees, they're, they're super off-put by this. And they come up to Jesus and they say, hey, stop this. This is, you know, in their gut, these Pharisees, it just felt wrong to them. A man receiving worship. The people are all around him. They're putting palm branches down. They're crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Lord saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus is just letting them do this. He's receiving worship. He's receiving praise. And you can, I mean, don't get, be too hard on the Pharisees here. This is, Jesus did not come in with a halo and beautiful blue eyes and floating into Jerusalem. He looked like a normal person, everyday person. And here he is receiving worship, and he's not stopping that. He's just letting it happen. Imagine if that happened today. You would feel, you would feel threatened in your gut. Right? We have the advantage of hindsight where we know it's Jesus. So we're like, oh, those, those Pharisees, they, how did they not? We wouldn't have known either. We would be very threatened by this. And they come up to him and they're like, how can you just let this happen? Remember what he says? He says, oh, I'll tell you the truth. If I stop them, then the rocks and the mountains and the trees and the valley, everyone's, the, the, the creation will start worshiping me. Do you think they like that or not like that? They're very threatened. His presence is both welcome and threatening at the same time. And he comes into the city, and the first thing that he does as the king, as the claimed king, that's the context here. The first kingly thing that he does is what? He goes to the temple, and he clears it out. That's his first order of business. Goes to the temple and clears it out. Stops what's going on there forms a whip, overturns the tables, tells, no, you're out, get out, you're not coming in. This is the picture of Jesus that we have before us today on Palm Sunday. So it begs the question, why is this at the top of his priority as king? Why? 
And there's a lot more questions. What is significant? What is so significant about the temple? So we've got the king not just coming into Jerusalem, but now we've got the king specifically returning to the temple. What is the big deal about the temple when it relates to Jesus' mission? And what was going on in the temple that made Jesus so mad, made the king so upset to come into his house and something is going on that's so upsetting, so contrary to who he is, that he has this reaction, this resolve. And what does this say about who Jesus is? And finally, what does this have to do with you and me on Palm Sunday? Let's explore all this stuff a little bit today. What is this? First of all, it's, we need to understand the idea of a temple, because it's really, really difficult for us to understand that here in Seattle in 2023. The idea of a temple is a different kind of idea for us. For one thing, you need to understand on the Jewish Passover week, the temple is the reason that Jews would travel from all over the known world to come to Jerusalem. Josephus, an ancient Roman historian, tells us that on this particular Passover week, um, a roughly two million people came into the city of Jerusalem. It's packed. It's packed out with folks, packed out with people. And the reason they came was because there was something that the temple afforded them that they could not do at home really, well, at least without not the same effect. It was so important that they would pilgrim all the way here um, and the reason was this temple. There are elements of the Jewish temple that are unique and not offered at another synagogue or some other holy site. And it really gives us an, uh, an understanding into the ancient Jewish mindset of religion and who God was and who they were and related to God. The temple actually has elements of the entire biblical plot line within it. The temple actually reveals all of how Jewish people thought about God. In fact, the reason the money changers and the sellers were even there, the reason they were there in the temple was precisely because the Jews, no matter where they were in the world, had to come back to the temple. To the Jewish person, the temple is unique because it is the place someone can dwell face-to-face -face with God. That's number one. The Jewish temple, which is obviously not there anymore, the Jewish temple was unique because it was the place by which one can dwell with God, and that's the way it was meant to be in the beginning. We see, um, we see seeds of a temple, of a meeting place from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, we've got a, a garden temple, okay? A garden, in fact, Ezekiel 28 compares uh, compares Eden to a cosmic temple, actually a mountain. And most um, ancient Near East religions believe that they had their temples on mountaintops. They believed that God was higher up and they could ascend and get up there. And Eden was the same way, according to Ezekiel 28. It was on a mountain with this tree of life right in the middle, or not in the middle, the tree, the, in the midst was the tree of good and evil, but there was also this tree of life that was kind of a representation of the presence of God. And when, our, when Adam and Eve would eat of that tree, they got life and sustenance, and they were to dwell in God's presence. That was the whole idea. 
Uh, day six, God makes ma male and female. And day seven, God rests. And they all rest in his Sabbath day glory and presence. And all work and all creativity and all goodness from humankind flowed from this face-to-face -face present relationship with God. In fact, there are several clues in the original text that, that give us, uh, especially when it comes to lights and the seasons and those types of things that are directly related to a temple and a worship system. Not seasons in terms of summer, winter, autumn, those types of things, but seasons in terms of sacred festivals like Passover, those types of things. Set lights that would call people into God's presence where they would receive all of these things. And you know the story, when Adam and Eve rebelled, what happened? He said, don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of good and evil, good and bad, because the day you do, you will surely die. And then what happened when they died? When they ate the tree, did they, did they die as in like physical death, a cessation of processes? Someone say no. No. What happened? What's that? Well, in what way? They had to, they, the relationship because they had to what? They had to leave. God said, he kicked them out of the garden. And you remember what he put there? Uh, uh, he put there to guard it was this sword, this flaming sword so that they couldn't get back in. There's our plot, you guys. That's the biblical plot line. Mankind was made to be in the presence of God and now there's a breach there's a, there's a chasm, there's an uh, there's, there's uh, insurmountable barrier, a breach between mankind and God. That's the plot. And the rest of the Bible is answering that question. Really, I'm not making this up. The rest of the Bible is the answer to the question, how can man get back to God? How can mankind get back to God? And as this idea develops throughout the Old Testament... Eventually, a temple. Um, first, before that, is a tabernacle, a tent that Moses was instructed to build that, by the way, was instructed and decorated to look just like the Garden of Eden. And they were to return. They were cast out east. There's this breach and through uh, rituals and a Levitical priesthood and mediators and sacrifice and all of those things, the people were to make their way back west and return back into God's presence. And eventually, in David's time, this tent became a temple. Specifically, uh, Solomon saw David's, uh, Solomon, David's son, saw David's vision come true. Solomon built this glorious temple. Let me, let me read you. This is what happened when they dedicated the temple. When Solomon dedicated this incredible temple... Here's what happened. It says, Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into its place in the inner sanctuary, that is in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was like the throne of God himself. And they brought it into the Holy of Holies. And when this happened, underneath the wings of the cherubim, for the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark. By the way, remember, cherubim, those are heavenly creatures. Remember, Garden of Eden, they were guarding the way back. Now God is under them, and in Exodus, he says, I will meet you at the mercy seat. The lid of the ark is like a, like a seat with two cherubim over the top of it. 
so that the cherubim and the ark and its poles, and the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. You want to know why? Because no human could go in there. They would get it in there. The poles had to be so long. Only one guy could go in there one, one day a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest. And you couldn't just volunteer. You had to be born in a certain lineage. You had to be the, you, it was God that picked who the high priest was. And the poles were so long, the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before, uh, before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they, were, as they, and they are there to this day. So they just left the poles. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel when they had come out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, listen to what happened, a cloud, the Shekinah glory presence of God filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister. They couldn't even do their jobs because the cloud of, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. Okay, imagine that. This is not a symbol. This, is, this happened. The present, the manifest presence, think face to face, the, the experience of God's presence came into this temple to the point where the priests could not even go about their work. It was so overwhelming. This was, in the Old Testament, this was a taste of the pinnacle of the great tension being resolved. God has dwelling with his people again. That's the idea. This was such a high and holy occasion because it meant God and his people were reunited. And later, unfortunately, the, um, the Babylonians came because of the Israel's sin, even with God in their presence, Israel perpetually sins for 400 years of, of a cycle of rebellion. Isn't that crazy? In fact, God even predicted it. They're standing at the shores of the Jordan River. The Jordan goes up. There's walls of water on each side. And can you imagine seeing that miracle? And God says, get some stones and pile up the stones. You want to know Why? Because you're going to forget even this. You're going to forget even this. Here's this incredible community seeing the miracles of God in his presence. And yet, we just if you're reading through the Bible, you're just astounded. If you've been paying attention and reading through, you're, how can you guys do this and rebel and hurt people and oppress and greed and all sorts of abuse in the land. There's this breach in the heart, see, a, a, a physical temple, it's inadequate. Even there with the manifest presence of God, even that's, that's the greatness of mankind's problem here. Even that. And so Babylon comes and they destroy Jerusalem, they level Solomon's temple, and the people of God go into exile again. It's Garden of Eden all over again. They're, they have to leave. Get out. Out you go. Leave. And you get these, and yet there's still this longing for God in the people's hearts. Here's a psalm, a post-exilic song. It was written after they left and after Jerusalem was, was uh, leveled in the temple. Look at, he's, you, you guys know this song. This is Psalm 84. It says, how lovely, this is someone in Babylon thinking about the temple. How lovely is your dwelling place. To a Jewish person, that's real. That's real. We think, isn't God everywhere? Well, in a sense, yes. 
But for them, you need, it, but if you think of it that way, you really gut the Bible of its beautiful significance here. To a Jewish person, it, there was a breach. We, 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 we long to be in this relationship, and yet we can't be. That's what, this is what the heart of this song. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy. We think because it was so architecturally beautiful. No, 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 no. It was because the presence of God was there. Have you ever longed for something after you've lost it? I remember I, I grew up in, have you ever been to McMinnville, Oregon? Yeah, I grew up in McMinnville. It's a beautiful, cute little town. I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> at the time, I was like, I cannot wait to get out. But I've since taken friends back there, and I was giving them a tour around, and they're like, how did you ever leave this place? This is just so beautiful. And I'm looking around going, you know, they're right. We have this tendency to not know what we've got at the time and look back and go, I missed it. I was right there, and I missed it. Sometimes it's more tragic. Sometimes, um, you know, the family breaks up. The wife says, I've had it. And that's when the husband says, oh, what was I, I missed it. This is on a, on, a, on a national level here. The ancient people were cast out and they look back at this experience where God's presence was there with such regret and they go, he was right in our presence and yet we just continually, chronically disobeyed him. We missed it and now I'm longing for it. My heart and my flesh sing for joy. For what? He says, for the temple and the architecture? No, for the living God. Not a statue, not a relic, his presence was so close. I could just. Now I'm in this foreign place. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. In other words, even the sparrows, they could, they could nest with you, and here I am so far away. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Now, for us, if you are in a Western situation, which you are, obviously, it's hard for you to get that part. We think, I want to dwell, you know, in a mindset with God. You're missing, you're missing the eternal cry here of the ancient person. There is something, they are very much feeling the breach and the distance. In America, we think, well, God's everywhere, isn't he? And the answer is, in a sense, yes. But, um, well, let me, let me do it this way. Think of someone famous. Think of a household name. Let's, let's, think of, let's think of Elon Musk, okay? We know who Elon Musk is. We have a sense of what he stands for. We see his, we see his mark all throughout this city. We don't hear them. Be careful. We don't hear those things coming. But they hum by, Right? But if anybody wants to go and actually know Elon Musk, what do you got to do? You got to go to where he dwells, where he lives, and you have to spend time with him. You can look up someone famous on Wikipedia, and you can learn a whole lot of things about that person, where they were born, where they grew up, where they went to school, 
what their alma mater is, where they went after that, how their career got started, how many marriages they might have had, how many kids they have, and on and, you know, on, and on and on it goes. But do you say you know that person? No. To know a person, you've got to find where they dwell and you've got to be with them and spend face-to-face time. To the Bible, it's the same thing. In the Bible, it's the same thing. We, we, know, we see God everywhere. We see his mark everywhere, especially when you look in the mirror. Image bearers. We have a sense of God and a love for him, perhaps, even a longing and a need for him. But the claim of the Old Testament is that the temple is the place where you go to be with God face to face. The temple is the place where you go to meet with God face to face. You couldn't get that in a synagogue or out in the woods to at least to the same degree as the temple. That's number one. That's why this is so significant. That's why Jesus is going and he's clearing the temple. That's why it's a big deal. Secondly, though, the temple was a place of, number one, a place of God's presence. Secondly, it was the place of sacrifice. The place of sacrifice that you could not get anywhere else. And the two ideas go hand in hand. These two concepts go together. In other words, let me put it this way. Because the temple was the place of meeting with God, therefore, it had to be a place of sacrifice. Are you with me? Because the temple is the place to meet with God. So right away in the plot, you've got this incredible tension here. I want to meet with God. I was made to meet with God, and yet I can't. You can feel that. Have you, okay, let me, just, let me just poke at that feeling a little bit. Have you ever been estranged from your spouse or gotten a fight with your spouse? I mean, obviously no one. I'm just kidding. No one's brave enough to raise their hand, and, and nor should you. Please, it's almost Easter. Let's just get through this with peace. But have you ever been to that place where there's this awkward silence in the room? And there's this sense of, why are you so quiet? I'm not quiet. Why are you quiet? You know, that whole thing. And you get into the whole, the whole, the whole deal. And there's this, the reason this hurts so much is because you love that person, and yet there's a breach. I want it to be different. And yet I can't fix it. It's it's one of the most horrible feelings. Married people understand this. It's just a horrible feeling. This is why some of the manliest men that just will not break for anyone else with their wives, they're like, okay, I'm sorry. Because they just want it to be, they want unity again. I want that love again, that connection again. Think of this on a cosmic level. I want to be with God. I want unity with God. And yet, I just, I can't do this. So, the temple, therefore, had to be a place of sacrifice. And that's why the money changes are there. That's why this is happening. Jesus walks into the temple. And what happened was, is you had to bring a, if you wanted to be face-to-face with God, if you wanted to be in his presence, you had to bring a sacrifice. But this is the holy God we're talking about. It had to be the great, the best sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. And guess what? We found a blemish. But don't you worry. Don't you worry. We happen to have a perfect goat right here for a very inflated price. They would inflate the price and therefore they would, instead of bridging the gap between mankind and God, these money changers were were widening the gap between mankind and God and boy, that made Jesus mad because what did he come to do? He came to close the gap between mankind and God. 
And yet, you have to have a sacrifice. In the Bible, this is another thing that's tough for us to understand. You can't just, you can't just walk into God's presence and say, hi, hello. That's hard for us to get. You can't just walk into God's presence and say, hey, how's it going? It was the place of meeting, but if you wanted to meet with him, there had to be a sacrifice. And this really points to the uniqueness of, the, of biblical religion, which is interesting. At that moment in time, um, Judaism is very unique because on the eastern side, in eastern religions, you have a belief in God that is absolute, that is powerful, that is infinite, but not personal. You can think of all the the eastern religions today, Hinduism, Buddhism, and many more. There's a force there is an energy, there is perhaps a spiritual consciousness, there is something going on, there's a force of those types of things that you can experience, but you cannot know that force personally. So on the one hand, you've got, inf- you've got infinite power, you've got absolute authority, you've got this force or this energy or this algorithm that's running through the, the universe, but you cannot know it. You can just experience it if you're lucky, but you cannot know it. But on the other hand, on the other side of the, of the Jewish folks, you had the Western religions, Greeks, Romans, the Europeans, who believed that gods, the gods were personal, but they were not infinite. They, you know, they were not all-powerful. They had problems, they experienced hatred and jealousy and ambition, and they fought against each other. And basically, the Greeks and the Romans took human traits and projected them onto this view of gods. So on the one hand, you've got, on the eastern side, you've got God that is infinite but not personal. On the other hand, you've got God that is personal but not infinite. And right in the middle, you've got Judaism that says, no, we have a transcendent God who is imminent. He is infinite and he's love. He is the metaphysical, but he wants to be, he wants a personal relationship with you. He wants to meet. And this made Judaism very, very different. Personal and infinite. Loving and holy. Transcendent and imminent. So on the one hand, because he's personal, you can meet him. You can feel the tension here. Because he's personal, you can meet him. You don't need to, to talk to, a, or you can't meet or talk to a force. But because he's personal, you had to have a temple, a meeting place. And you couldn't come without sacrifice. Why? Because there's a breach. This is something, again, very difficult for us to understand, not because we're bad, just because we're so far removed. But I think we can understand in another way. People say, why all the blood? Why the sacrifice? Why did something innocent have to die? That's the part of the Bible I just don't understand. And that's understandable not to understand that. Why, does something, why do I have to kill a lamb? I mean, really, that seems so inadequate. Does that really cover my sins? All of those things go through our minds. And the answer is not really, but it points to something greater. But the point is there's some kind of a... a okay, let me put it this way. Let's say you... Let's say you adopt somebody. Let's say you adopt a, a, a little kid and you give all your money, you pour all your resources into raising this little person. 
and you feed them and you educate them and you love them and you give them your affection and you give them your food and you give them all of these things and then they grow up and, they go, and you give them money and they go off to college and they don't stay in touch with you. You don't hear from them for like 10 years. Won't return your calls, won't return your anything. And your heart breaks. I actually um, used to minister to a family that uh, a young man, this is years and years ago, on his 18th birthday, 18th birthday, I'll never forget this, packed up his stuff and said to his mom and dad, I hate you and you'll never see me again. And they, to this day, have not seen that kid again. He walked out. And I walked that family through such grief, such heartache, not understanding why, what's going on. Imagine if you ran, you're at the supermarket and you run into that kid that you adopted and they come up to you, they say, hey, how have you been? Hey, how are you? You'd, what would you, I mean, this is just justice in each of our hearts right now. What would you, what would you do? You can't just pick up like that, right? You'd say, hey, I want to talk with you, but what about the breach? It's been years. What do, you, what do you mean? You're just going to come up and act like nothing happened? That doesn't make any sense. We've got to talk about the breach, and then our fellowship can be restored. Something's got to be dealt with here. Now you understand a little bit of the plot line of the Bible. See, here's the thing. If there is a God, if there is a God, you know what that means? That means that every molecule, this is just logic. Every thought that you think, every, every talent that you have, every skill that you have is complete, if there's a God, is completely and utterly owed to him. You didn't choose to be here. You didn't choose to be born. You didn't choose to have the, the aptitude that you have, the capabilities that you have, the talent that you have. You didn't choose the, the money that you have. You, didn't you might think that you had something to do with it, but he gave you all that ability. And then we go on years and years and years without thinking about God. Our whole society is built on that. In America, we're self-made people. And then we think we can just come in and say, hey God, how's it going? How you been? He's going to say, whoa, 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 what about the breach? I want to meet with you face to face, but there's a problem here. We've got to take care of it. There's got to be a sacrifice. Someone's got to pay. The reality is it's not that hard to understand. We all get it on a human level. How much more on a cosmic level? If I were to go into the front row and I was to take someone's phone and just smash it on the ground, say I just lose my mind for a second, and I smash it on the ground, and you call the police, and the police come, and I say, oh, I'm sorry. And then the policeman turns to you and says, well, he's sorry. You should just, you know, let it go. Forgive him. What's the problem there? Someone's got to pay for the phone. There is no such thing, listen everybody, there is no such thing of an offense that is free. It does not exist. Someone's got to pay for it. Either he's going to pay for it, and if, I, if you forgive me, what does that mean? It means to forgive me, it means you incur the cost yourself, which is called, a, you're making a what? 
Someone say sacrifice. You're making a sacrifice. Yes, you're getting it. You're making a sacrifice. There's got to be a sacrifice if there's going to be a meeting with God. That's the whole point. So what does Jesus, what does this tell us about Jesus here? What's he, what is the meaning of cleansing the temple? It means this. He demands relationship. Do you hear what he said here? He said, have you not heard, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. You know what that means? Prayer. You know what that means? It means meeting. It means relationship. It means being with God. That's what prayer is. It's a, it's a conversation. It's he initiates and we respond. We say something back. It's just like, I mean, you can relate to this. It's very natural. If I was to give you a gift at Christmas time, you'd be like, oh shoot, I didn't get you one. Like right away, I, I want to respond. We have things in our, in our brains called mirror neurons that when you see somebody else smile, you respond with a smile. Typically, generally, you respond with a smile back. It's why we yawn when other people yawn. It's, it's a response. We're made to respond in relationship with one another. How much more so in, in a relationship with God? We're made for this, you guys. We're made to not have a breach, but to have access. So he's saying, number one, my house is a house of relationship. You've made it into this business thing. I've come to close the gap. You've widened the gap. My house should be a house of prayer where we meet, where we talk, where we have fellowship, where we rest, where we Sabbath, where we're content, just being in each other's presence. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Do you have, uh, well, let me just put it to you. Do you have that? Do you have that? Secondly, Jesus declares that he's the final temple. Why is he the final temple? You know, he shows up and begins like, he starts to act like he owns the place. That's what he's doing here. Get at, you know, he's like, I'm here now. And what he's saying is, the temple is, and this is what he, the book of Hebrews will tell you, the temple is actually inadequate. Jesus is saying, I'm actually the new temple. This will not work anymore. I'm here now. The king is here. I have come. And now I am the meeting place between God and man. And I am also the place of sacrifice. I'm both. In me. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, will go on to put that connection together. Will say that Jesus becomes the new temple. And now all of us have access to God. In chapter 20, verse 2, the very last verse of our passage. After he had cleansed the temple, they came to him. They say, by what authority do you do these things? And the answer is, in two of the gospels, well, in, in, in the book of John, he says, tear this temple down. Remember? He says, tear this temple down. And in three days, I'll rise it up again. And he got in a lot of trouble for that. But John says he was talking about his own body. He was talking about himself. You tear this temple down. You sacrifice me. I'll raise it back up again. And what will happen? The veil will rent. Mankind will have ultimate, always, forever access right now to God. And he goes on to say to us believers at Pentecost, you are now the temples 
of the Holy Spirit. Now you are the interface between God and mankind. And here's the part that a lot of people leave out, but I got to put it in. You are also now the place of sacrifice. In other words, remember I told you those two things were connected? Because God wants to meet with man, there also has to be a sacrifice. Now you're the new temple. God, Jesus is the ultimate temple, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6 say, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You know what that means? It means to reach the world, you also must sacrifice. To be effective, you also have to live a life of adversity at times. You're going to be persecuted. You've got to die to yourself. You've got to prefer others as more. You have to, basically, you're following Jesus where he said, take up your cross every day and follow me. That wasn't a one-time event, Christians. That was a lifestyle, a template of following Jesus. Take up your cross and follow me. To the degree that we do that, people will begin to have face-to-face -face, face -face encounters with imperfect yet genuine image bearers of God. He's living in us, encountering the world because His Holy Spirit is present within us. What Jesus is saying is, I am God in person. Finally, yes, you can come and have a sense, not just for a sense of God, but you can know God, not just from going out into the woods or up in the mountains or going to church on Sunday. You can know God anytime because I'm the temple. It's the place where you meet God face to face, and I'm also the sacrifice. And now you go on in this way. This is why we're here. That's why they started calling Christians Christians, little Christs. Not because they were nice, because they were sacrificial. They were preferring others over themselves. They were making great sacrifices, and yet they had this joy, this roaring joy within them. In the midst of an uncertain world, in the midst of a, where they couldn't control things, they weren't in control. They were being killed and persecuted. They could say, God's in control, he's in me. Now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the meeting place and of sacrifice. And that, that, that brings me to this. Do you meet with God? Do you understand that this is the crux of Christianity? Do you know him? Is your house a house of prayer? How would Jesus cleanse your temple today? Don't you know, don't you know, don't you know that you are a house of prayer, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God, God lives in your body, lives in your mind? How would God cleanse you today? What are you grasping on? How are you, are you widening your relationship to him instead of coming closer and bridging the gap? Are you widening your relationship to others, giving an impression that God, God is far away, not near? God repels, what about people that you don't agree with? People that you don't see their point of view? Do you, are you repelled by them? 
Or like God, do you incarnate and come near? Do you love? Do you smile? We are the temple. It's incredible. What a mission we're on. What a mission we're on with each other, in our houses, with our children, to the homeless, to our coworkers. We're a place where mankind and God meet and a place of, and the only way that's going to work, to the degree that you sacrifice yourself redemptively, to that degree, God's presence is there. Sacrificial love. Lord, I, man, I sense that you want to cleanse us today. God, I confess the money changers and the sellers and the the distractions and the anger and the stress, all of those things that take up residence in this temple. I pray that you would cleanse us, Lord, from it. Lord, we repent. We have to deal with the breach. And we ask that you would remind us that you did deal with the breach. Because Jesus, the temple, also became the sacrifice. And now there is no, nothing holding us back. We don't have to do the silent treatment or the passive-aggressive thing with you. Love has been restored. May we realize it and may we enter into it today as we repent. In Jesus' name, amen.